0: You're listening to Gospel Bound, a podcast from the Gospel Coalition for those searching for firm faith in an anxious age. I'm your host, Colin Hanson. Everyone loves a good story, especially in these hard times. Or maybe not. I mean, should we be swapping yarns while the world burns? Maybe we need less levity, more solemnity when we see so much wrong in the world, Well, as a professional storyteller, Sean Dietrich brings together the levity and solemnity in his new book, Will the Circle Be Unbroken, published by Zondervan. Also known as Sean of the South, Dietrich regales readers with stories of family, faith, and food. This memoir of learning to believe you're going to be okay deals with serious themes of fatherhood, suicide, education, and physical abuse. In his novel, Stars of Alabama, published last year, Dietrich likewise explores themes of poverty, faith, friendship, religious hypocrisy, and hope. Sean of the South joins me on Gospel Bound to discuss hope and heartache during the best and worst of times. Maybe we can even get him to tell a few good stories. Thank you for joining, Sean.
1: Oh, thanks for having me.
0: Your mother had previously encouraged you to write about what you'd been through together. What made you feel ready to finally write that story?
1: By, by the time I wrote Will the Circle being broken, I had produced almost almost 2,000 daily columns of about seven to 900 words apiece. So I had explored a lot of topics, which is something I never thought I would ever, ever do in my life, get the opportunity to do. So I had talked a lot about some really bad things and never really... But really was prepared for what that might do to me. Wasn't really prepared for the good that it would do for me. And it really was, you know, I can remember the first thing I ever wrote that was really kind of sentimental. Normally I was writing kind of humorous stuff to start with. My first story was that really did well was about uh, going fishing and eating a lot of fiber and having an accident. <laughs> <laughs> and the thing just kind of did really well, and that was kind of what started. You know, that's not a way to launch a literary career, but
0: <laughs> just <laughs> like Faulkner, I think. Yeah,
1: <laughs> so there I was, and I wrote something on Mother's Day about my mother. It was such a brutal but wonderful experience at the same time. That when I was done, I I felt just kind of chilly all over, but but good. I was really bearing my my soul, and that was kind of the steady beginning to me talking about some deeper things. And so people were kind of viewing me as humorous. And then I would write something about my father. And I didn't realize I had so much to say. And then we started doing live events. This was all before we were the circle. We started doing these live events and I would tell stories. I've never done that before. I certainly didn't think I would ever do it or don't know why people would come to see it. And when the events were over after I had, Played music and told stories, which were all funny and laughable, and for you know for fun. The line of people at these events to just meet me was—it was at every event. It was like this. They would be the best people. They were—they were like friends, and I would say, forty percent of everybody in the line had a story about the death of a loved one or a pretty traumatic childhood or suicide. So was a very common thing. And I started to feel extremely humbled. Such an overused word. I started to feel extremely leveled. I did not deserve to be talking to these people. They needed to be talking to me. I know nothing. They And they know I know nothing. And that's, maybe puts us all on an even playing field. So it became the most profound era of my life. By the time it was time to write the book, I realized that I had enough bravery accumulated to explore some things I would have never explored before and tell it maybe in a way that was not dark, because that was the issue for me, uh, to tell a story the way I went, grew up and went to life and not make it dark, but hopeful. Even a little bit humorous, and even dare I say it, maybe make someone feel good for just a little bit. That was so. That was uh, the goal of the book, and I really felt like I was prepared for it. Then the pandemic happened, and now everything's
0: gone. <laughs> <laughs> well, the, the the internet can be such a such a vicious space. Yeah how do you how do you feel about putting yourself out there in such vulnerable ways on the internet? That's a
1: good. That's a good question. No one ever asks that, and that is perhaps uh, a daily occurrence uh, for me. I get, I get more ugly mail than you would think, and I don't write about anything. I I, I don't write about anything that's divisive. I mean, I I shun shun from everything that's divisive because it's not me. But I still get messages or comments uh, from some truly bitter people. And some of them have really (laughs) hurt, but it's, uh, it brings out a really good piece of you or a really bad piece of you. And the bad piece of you, if it brings that out, you need to see that because you need to deal with it because uh, the dark pieces of my personality or or nature or whatever, I don't want to keep them. You know, I want them to go away. I want them to be dealt with. So, but I would say by and large, those, uh, ugly messages have brought out interesting things in me that I didn't know were there. And it is sometimes, maybe 50% of the time, led to something kind of cool on the other end. I'll, I'll usually address, some, sometimes i made a habit of addressing some ugly comments that people would write to me publicly. And I would try to be as just kind as I could be to them and concede to the things they were criticizing me for and say, yeah, you're right. And the next day I would get a message back from them and it would be this long apology and uh, then we would become friends and now we're still friends you know had I gone the other direction had I told them that they were full of it you know and to you know maybe pointed out where they were wrong or whatever I don't know that would have happened so I, that's kind of an interesting
0: you may not deal with divisive themes and that's true when it comes to politics or religion kind of those typical divisive topics you're not kind of jumping in there and making a lot of polemical arguments on that front but I would imagine when you're dealing with just the heaviness of the tragedies with your father and growing up and things like that, it's going to trigger some powerful emotions in people. And when they're coming at you, they're, they're coming out of those emotions and they're, they're pinning more than they should on you. And the the, the positive people are doing the same thing. They're pinning more on you than they should. Definitely. And so Definitely. if you can find ways to diffuse them, it really helps. And treat them as people who are struggling. I
1: found that uh, in the age of the Internet, people can see what they want to see. Yeah. A- and in you, and they can make you what they want
0: you to be. I work with a lot of Christians struggling to make peace with the religion of their youth. And that's even if they continue to practice their faith in a different church. How do you find a way to appreciate your particular kind of Southern Baptist upbringing Warts and all.
1: I have never had a more conflicted <laughs> viewpoint in my own personal life than with the Baptist tradition. I I know things about the Baptists that I grew up with that just really make me sad, and yet I know things about them that you have to kind of be in the tradition to know. And I and I know certain people that are still close to me and people who help raised me, who are nothing short of beauty. I mean, they are they are beauty inside and out. The tradition itself for me was where I found some of the greatest things that have traveled with me, you know, in my own personal journey, morality that they practiced and all that. And yet some of their hangups were also some of the things that really screwed me up. You know, we, we were the kind of people who didn't believe in, you know, premarital relations because it could lead to dancing. We didn't we didn't believe in alcoholism, uh, but but everybody kept their beer in the garage refrigerator. So that's you know, there were just all these these things did not line up.
0: Inconsistencies, part of what you deal with that I was going to talk to you about Stars of Alabama in particular, you have a finely tuned sense for that religious (laughs) hypocrisy or inconsistency, at least.
1: We had we had great people and we had some nuts. I, I gave a big old talk to a room of of six hundred Alabama municipalities in Mobile, Alabama. It was good fun, and I mostly talked about denominations because I love the differences in denominations. They were like I've never been li- I've never had that the good of laughs before telling stories. They laughed so hard that my ears hurt. Uh, <laughs> when I got out. Into the lobby after the show was over. This little old man was there standing to meet me, and I knew he was Southern Baptist. I could tell by the way he walked. <laughs> he was mad. He was mad. He berated me out there in that lobby for maybe 30 minutes. I didn't say a word to him because I knew it was important for him to get it out, and he did. He, he had a right to, to say what he you know, felt. He was so angry with me, and it was just such an amazing juxtaposition. To see, half that room was Southern Baptist. There were even pre there were several Baptist preachers in there, and then there were this, there are some you know. Who, I, I love that tradition though, and that's the thing that a lot of people don't. A lot of bitter people who've left uh, certain traditions don't understand about me, and I have been in that position before in my life, so I understand where they're coming from. But I do value the way that I was raised. And I value beauty in those traditions. I try not to think about some of the grossness. I try to remind myself that the Baptist tradition, yes, it was steeped in the Southern Baptists primarily were steeped in some kinds of racism and bigotry, but Baptists were also Martin Luther King Jr. and there were also some people that I very highly respect uh, who say words and believe things that line up with everything I, f- I feel to be
0: true also i think that you could broaden what you're saying there about southern baptists to southern life That's in true. southern history in general that it's for those of us who love the tradition love love being southern proud to be southern we nevertheless hold things in tension from the inside Because we know better than anybody else the problems. Yeah. Well,
1: I like awareness. So, you know, some people get inflamed when we're criticized, but I, I I think we need to be criticized. I I think uh, some of our things are a little askew, but I also love to honor the traditions in, in the middle of it. So I, I don't know. I've probably gotten you all off course here. You <laughs>
0: <have>. <laughs> well, in your in your writing about Southern Baptists, it's it's interesting. I hear a lot less about baptism and mo- a lot more about fried chicken. <laughs> and it, it seems like every denomination has its particular go-to food. So I, I come from the Midwest, um, Methodist on one side, Lutheran on the oh, other, okay. and you better believe we've got our foods. What are your foods? Well, it's the hot dishes. You know, uh, it's it's all about the hot dish. It's all about the those casseroles. I mean, Southerners would call them casseroles, yeah, yeah, hot okay. dishes. But then you go, you you connect back to so often the ties between the ethnicity and the religion. So sure. it can be hard to differentiate. But sure. Lutherans, for all intents and purposes, eat the lutefisk and the left so and <laughs> things like that. And you know, versus what the Germans do, and versus what uh, you know, who else? the Irish there? But I mean, how would you describe the relationship between food and faith.
1: The real heart of the Southern Baptist tradition for me uh, takes place in two places, not the sanctuary, the fellowship hall in the parking lot. This is where we talk. This is where we we don't fake it. This is where we're, we're really kind of being who we are. When we're sitting down and we're eating, we're piling it in and we're laughing and we're happy. And when we're out in the parking lot, we're full and we're sick. <laughs> And we're talking, and we don't know how to say goodbye. As soon as we say goodbye, we're out there for another hour and a half. I have died. I have died out in several Baptist parking lots watching my mother say goodbye to someone for the 50th time until it was time for supper. Uh, but I do love food and i was a, I was a very chubby child growing up so I had a, a real affinity toward food uh, and i and I'm not exaggerating by saying the fondest memories I have of my life take like, place in those little fellowship halls and still do we've been really fortunate to, to travel a lot uh, with with the riding stuff and we go to a lot of different denominations a lot of churches and I'm so happy to report that it still happens, it still <laughs> goes on. You know what I mean. It, it, sometimes I get afraid that that part of our culture in is U.S. is disappearing. That church fellowship halls are—they're not doing potlucks anymore. They're not doing you know covered dish suppers. They're not doing the hot dish that they—they'll get like some food delivery service, Cisco or somebody, or a catered barbecue. I go places and it is old ladies with them casseroles covered in dangerous amounts of cheese. I mean, <laughs> it's wonderful. It's it's wonderful. I hope it never
0: disappears. I uh, remember talking with a pastor who had come into the South. I think he was from actually Europe. And he said, it was so confusing for me at first. I realized that nobody actually did anything in meetings. All of the politics had already happened in the parking lot before the meetings. <laughs>
1: Oh, that's that's, exactly right. That's dangerously true.
0: All the decisions have already been made. The meeting is just where you find out if you won, (laughs) (laughs) which means if you don't know that you're going to win, it means you already
1: lost. You you already lost. That's that's, that's profound.
0: (laughs) Southern church politics. I've learned that transcends denominations, by the way, I think. I think I was a Presbyterian who told me that. What makes for a good story?
1: Well, change for me, uh, if you can enter into the story one way and you can change at the end or be changed by the end and, and just flop and wiggle and die out in the open. Uh, that makes, to me, a really honest story. Uh, a good, funny story to me also is made by not taking ourselves seriously. I like people. Who can tell a story in which they are the punchline themselves? You know, some of the best humor out there is told by people who just are not afraid of looking like a fool. That all boils down to just blatant vulnerability.
0: That's part of just entertainment in general. I mean, but it's also it's also preachers uh, yeah. for that matter. That's vulnerability. That's putting yourself out there. It just comes with the stage.
1: I agree, I, and I love to see people who can do it uh, because it's not easy to do. uh, And it's certainly you have to let down a lot of defenses and you have to admit that you're wrong a lot and, and that kind of stuff makes good story and that makes a good approachable narrative.
0: What do you hope people will take away From your stories, just hoping to bring a little joy or comfort, which certainly we need more of, especially with the aforementioned internet. I remember thinking at the beginning of this pandemic, as if the last thing we need is more time at home by ourselves in Mm -hmm. front of a computer. That doesn't add up. But is there is there a point you want to convey in these stories? We're talking about whether it's your memoir or your novel. I mean,
1: I should I should tell you that I have a a point and a message. Uh, but I don't. And, and, and that's not accidental. It's actually on purpose because I don't know enough to give a, an eternal message that I believe you need to get, or you need to know. Or you need. I, I feel like I learned more from you. In fact, in the podcast, I've learned more from you than, than I thought I would, you know? So, <laughs> so how can I have a message when I want to listen my only goal with writing that book was to see my own life from the third person view to where I didn't personalize everything where I could see that character who was me, and I found so much sympathy without self-pity for that young man and for for him and for his family. I felt like I understood who I became a whole lot better, which was you know invaluable therapy for me. That was one of the primary. Things. Everything else, if it's if it's made any difference to anybody, that's that has nothing to do with me. I want to make people feel good right now, especially especially yeah. because uh, one third of the U.S. by the U.S. Census Bureau is probably clinically depressed. I wrote a simple column about that a few days ago, and was inundated with hundreds and hundreds of emails within 24 hours of suicide, pe- suicidal people, depressed people. These are people that we know. These are people that we yeah. love. Our friends are not talking about it. They're depressed right now. The, the emails are still coming in right now while I'm talking to you. I see one, two emails just came in. Hmm. I promise you they're about depression. It blew my mind. And I want to I help. I want to make people feel better. That make, that's, all I, that's the goal of my life. Maybe a little grandiose, but... <laughs>
0: No, I mean, I think that's, um, you know, we're we're taking all these measures to be able to protect people's health, but there are major consequences to what we're doing, especially for older people who are isolated, isolated from those church meetings, isolated from those fellowship halls that have been their life um, and that have been their spiritual sustenance, the friendship that they share, the fellowship they share, the communion that they take and partake in. Um, It's a real tragedy. Oh, it is. and um, and we do need stories of stories of uplift story of, of hope stories of change stories of transformation to show us that we're going to be okay at the other end of this
1: what I've been so touched with is they're out there in spades right now more than we would even imagine I have been fortunate to hear them you know from people who want to share their stories but people are really rising to the occasion too as well as being depressed there's a lot of people who are becoming better human beings.
0: Well, that's the way the Lord works, tends to work through those tragedies, like you talk about even in, in, in your memoir. Lurks through those dark moments, and that's the story of the cross. It's the story of Jesus. So it's not surprising. It's the story of scripture and it's the it story of how he continues to work. Faith healing is it's never been a part of my Christian practice um so I'm, I'm pretty easily rankled by the kinds of religious hypocrites or false teachers that you portray in uh, stars of alabama and yet somehow you manage to write sympathetically about the people who are being conned how do you manage that balance
1: wow what a great great question I mean, these are some of the best questions i've had <laughs> well i'll tell you uh my mother is a profoundly spiritual woman, and I hope she doesn't ever listen to this because I'm a kill on her. But you know, she used to go to some of them faith healing crusades when I was growing up. She's very, very. She's the most trusting woman I ever met. That trust that she gives to anybody freely has led her to get taken advantage of a lot, but it has also kept her tremendously innocent. If I could only be that trusting and less cynical, I would. Yes, I'd get hurt. But I would also be so free from cynicism, pessimism, guile, whatever you want to call it. So I saw her and some friends and we, you know, my mother was very, I like to call her a She was very interested in every single kind of denomination. Really, if any church was open, we'd go. She was really <laughs> more like a Method-Bapitocostalitarian. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, so I saw a lot of that. You know, camp meetings were a huge part of our life. Baptists, too. We, we, they'd come in, and they, we had a lot of that. I remember one guy led a life in revival across town, and he set up a tent, and he came up to the stage, and he got behind the pulpit, and he looked at everybody real quiet. You could hear a pin drop, and he just said, ha! And some guy in the back of the room or a tent said, ha-ha! ha ha And another lady in the corner said, ha, ha, ha. And after that, in about maybe 10 seconds, the place came unglued. There was laughter just, and it got creepy. It was not like, uh, this is not me judging anybody's view of what the Holy Spirit does. But for me, it got creepy. You had people clucking like chickens for Jesus. And you had people who were getting slain and all this. uh, So that always fascinated me. Uh, because I've got some friends who believe in that very strongly. And I've also got some friends who've had experiences with it where they know it to be untrue. And I like, the thing I like the most about it, is that good things can happen even with people who have bad intentions. And so...
0: Apostle Paul said that, I mean, even in the book of Philippians, even if they have bad motives, Christ can be glorified. Christ can work through that,
1: and I lo- I love to watch you know, some people with not good intentions not win. So anyway, that's that's a that's a subject I really enjoyed exploring. I had a, a lot a lot of fun actually exploring that subject in that book because it was vast and it was kind of fun.
0: Well, even even novels can be autobiographical <laughs> in <laughs> yes. many cases to a certain level. I think uh, that great uh, Southern writer Harper Lee was uh, certainly true in her case. About that thing, we've learned more and more since time has passed of how autobiographical her famous novel was about her own family. Things like that, though, set at a different time. Well, Sean, it's been a real privilege to be able to Uh, talk. Um, books, Will the Circle Be Unbroken, published by Zondervan. Also, check out his novel from last year, Stars of Alabama, published by Thomas Nelson. My guest on Gospel Bound has been Sean of the South. Sean, thank you very much for joining me. Hey, Thanks for having me. It's been a true pleasure. Thanks for listening to this episode of Gospel Bound with Colin Hansen. Join us next time as we continue the search for firm faith in an anxious age. Visit tgc.org gospelbound to find transcripts and past episodes. Subscribe to my newsletter and suggest a guest or topic that will help you find hope in the gospel of Jesus Christ.